We're going to be in Judges 13 this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles or on your phone. Today we're beginning the most well-known judge in the entire book. The story of Samson. And he's not just famous because you read about him and learned about him when you were in children's Sunday school. He actually transcends the Bible in some ways in terms of his significance and his fame. There have been famous paintings with Samson and Delilah and Samson and the Lion. We have John Milton's poem about Samson. We even have one of Handel's musical pieces that is based on the story of Samson. So he is far and away the most famous judge, not only in the book of Judges, but he's known even with people that don't know anything about the Bible. So the next four weeks, we're going to be unpacking the judgeship of Samson. And in our time together today, we're going to look at the circumstances surrounding his birth. In fact, this is the only judge where we learn about the birth of the judge. So this is a unique story within the book of Judges. But the birth of Samson parallels many other birth narratives that we have in the Old Testament. And generally speaking, these birth narratives share a lot of the same characteristics. You often have a pious woman who is barren, who longs for a son. Then she receives a divine revelation, announcing that she will give birth to a son. Then the birth of the child is announced publicly, and then the child is named. Where do we have similar stories like this? Go back into the book of Genesis with Sarah in Genesis 18, Rebecca in Genesis 25, Rachel in Genesis 30, Hannah in 1 Samuel 1, Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. So the story of Samson is right up there, the birth of Samson is right up there with many other well-known births throughout Scripture. Every one of you in this room today also has a birth narrative. Probably not as famous as Samson's or Jesus's, other than for your parents who love telling the story. Now, I have a birth narrative about my oldest son. None of our children have great birth stories. If I'm just being honest, they're just normal, run-of-the-mill birth stories. But since Beckett is our oldest, I'll give you the quick account of his birth. So everybody open up your phones. You want to record this. This is really important. I arrived home from church one Wednesday night. This would have been August the 14th, 2013, around 8 o'clock or 8.30. And Ashley had had spicy chicken tenders from Popeye's that night. Because that's what you do in New Orleans. You eat Popeye's literally every meal. And she attributes her, what's the word, uh, beginning of labor pains to the spicy chicken tenders at Popeye's. So we get home around 8 or 8.30, and we have this app on our iPad that can track the contractions and the frequency and how quickly they happen. And so at some point, we realized we might need to call the doctor because these are coming pretty regularly. And as first-time parents, we're not really sure what's going on. The nurse probably didn't think we needed to go in, but she threw us a bone, and she said, well, you can come on in, and the doctor can check you out. So this is around 10 o'clock on that Wednesday evening. And sure enough, after the doctor and the nurse come in, they tell us, you are about to have a baby. And so at 2.30 a.m. on August the 15th of 2013, Beckett Alexander Rutland was brought into the world weighing five pounds and 13 ounces. 
Now, I told you there wasn't anything impressive about it. The most exciting aspect of his birth is the Popeyes, without question. <laughs> so, every one of you has a birth narrative of some sort. What's interesting about the Samson account is that the birth narrative does not tell us really about Samson himself or about the circumstances surrounding it. This chapter focuses on the dialogue between Samson's father, his mother, and the angel of the Lord. There is actually very little in this chapter about Samson himself. It's all about the conversations that exist. Now, I don't remember hardly any of the conversations that existed between Ashley and myself the night that Beckett was born, other than I was probably doing something wrong and not supporting her and encouraging her. I probably got yelled at at some point in the evening, but I don't remember the ins and outs of any conversation that happened that night. But in the story of Samson's birth, the whole chapter is about the dialogue between Manoah, his wife, and the angel of the Lord. And you'll notice in a minute why I keep referring to her as his wife. That is because she is never named in the entire account of Samson's birth. The wife is never given a name in the text. She's just simply referred to as Manoah's wife or Samson's mother. So as we work our way through this birth narrative today, you're going to notice three things from this chapter. Number one, this recurring theme of God's faithfulness to Israel. Number two, the insecurity of of Manoah himself, and then number three, a new judge is born. So God's faithfulness to Israel, the insecurity of Manoah, and a new judge is born. Number one, God's faithfulness to Israel. I know I sound like a broken record, but this is one of the themes of the entire book. God remains faithful to his covenant people in spite of the fact that they constantly disobey him. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. A couple of things that are unique about this verse. Number one, 40 years. This is the longest period of oppression that we have read up to this point in the book of Judges. If you go back and look at all of the other judgeships, with Othniel, it was eight years. With Ehud, it was 18 years. It was 20 years under Deborah and Barak. It was seven years under Gideon, 18 years under Jephthah. 40 years the Israelites have been under oppression before God raises up a new, a new judge. We also see that word in verse 1 again. It's not the first time we've seen it. We saw it in Judges 3, chapter 1, Judges 4, chapter 1, and Judges 10, verse 6. The author is trying to communicate to us once again that this is a vicious cycle that the Israelites find themselves in. Disobedience time and time again. Every judge provided for Israel is a sign of God's grace towards his people. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards humanity. If you think back about all of the judges, every single judge was a gift from God. 
Let's go ahead and name them all out so that we remember. Othniel, Ehud, Shamgar, Deborah, Barak, Gideon, Tola, Jer, Jephthah, Ibzon, Elon, Abdon, and Samson. Every single one of them throughout this long period of history. It's God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, and God's grace to his people. Israel did not deserve, based on their behavior, any of the judges that they received. Based on their behavior and their unfaithfulness to God, they deserved punishment. They deserved God's wrath. And yet, time and time again, even though they faced consequences, God always provided deliverance. He always provided a new judge who would raise up and deliver his people from oppression. In the same way that God offers salvation through these judges in the Old Testament, God offers salvation to us through Jesus Christ. Do we deserve it? Absolutely not. If grace is not unmerited favor, then it is not grace. Hear me very clearly. God's grace is unmerited favor. You cannot earn or achieve God's love. You cannot earn or achieve his grace in your life. And as Americans, we've been trained since birth, and it's a good thing to believe that it's all about work ethic and hard work and being productive and achieving and being efficient, and those are good qualities, all qualities that I applaud in human beings. But we have to be careful that we don't allow those characteristics to spill over into how we understand salvation. Because salvation is not based on our hard work, on our efficiency, on our achievement, on our productivity. In fact, it's only based on Christ's, his achievement, his productivity, his hard work for us on the cross. That's why it's so hard for people sometimes to wrap their mind around the idea that salvation is truly a free gift. We're not making that up when we say that. It is truly a gift of God's grace to us, absolutely no strings attached. That is what the good news of the gospel is. If you think about it for a moment, for those in the room this morning that are in Christ, think about your life. You were born into a specific period of time in history, into a certain family, perhaps born into a certain church with certain parents or grandparents or Sunday school teachers that communicated to you the truth of the gospel. And you had nothing to do with any of those circumstances. It was God's sovereign plan, his providence in your life, that you were born in a place at a certain time where you heard the good news of the gospel and you responded in faith and in repentance. You didn't earn that. You didn't achieve that. You had nothing to do with that whatsoever. It is a true gift of God's unmerited favor towards us. Now look at how God worked out the details in Samson's life, beginning in verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, 
whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. We have no reason to indicate or infer from the text that Samson's mother had done anything to be the one chosen by God to give birth to the greatest judge in the history of Israel. It is another example of God's unmerited favor towards his people. The author of this text does not give us any biographical information about Manoah's wife at all. We don't know anything about her, and yet God decides she will be the one to give birth to this judge who will raise up his people and deliver them from oppression to the Philistines. But God does give her some parameters that she needs to follow. The text tells us she needs to avoid strong drink or wine. She needs to avoid any foods that are unclean and not give her son a haircut because her son Samson is going to be a Nazarite. Now, if you want to jump over real quickly, you can, or I'll just read it for you. Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we're actually given the details of what it means to be a Nazarite and the description of how they are to live their lives. Number 6, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. He shall let the locks of hair of his head grow long. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body, not even for his father or for his mother, for brother or sister, If they die, shall he make himself unclean, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he is holy to the Lord. Now, why does this matter? This text becomes very important as we work our way through the story of Samson, because you're going to realize next week and in the weeks following that Samson violates his Nazarite vow through the way that he lives his life. This Nazarite vow that is placed on Samson, it is divinely imposed. It took place from the moment of his conception, and it was supposed to remain for the entirety of his life. And even though, based on Israel's behavior up to this point, they do not deserve another judge, God gives them Samson. And God tells Manoah's wife, you will bear a son. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So we see God's faithfulness to Israel 
in this passage. Number two, we also see the insecurity of Manoah. If you'll notice throughout the text, after Manoah's wife receives the news that she's going to give birth to Samson, she immediately goes to her husband. And this is where we learn about his insecurity. Look at verses 6 and verses 7. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Not one time in this text does the angel of the Lord ever visit Manoah. He always goes to his wife. Most people think that the reason the angel of the Lord came back is because, or most people think that the reason Manoah is so upset in this passage and wants more information and requests for the angel of the Lord to come back a second time is because he wasn't the one that received the news. It's kind of like a blow to the pride that his wife had knowledge of this birth before he did. So he pleads with God to send the angel of the Lord back again. And guess what God does? He sends the angel of the Lord back again. And he sends it to who? Manoah's wife again. So this is not what he wanted to happen. In his prayer, God, send this angel of the Lord to verify, to give me confirmation about what our son is to do. And God says, okay, I'll bring the angel back. And he sends it to his wife yet again. Look at verse 9. We're told, and God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angels of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Think about this for a moment. When we pray to God and we ask him to answer our prayers, many times he does answer our prayers. He just doesn't do it the way we want him to. This is exactly what's happened in this passage. Manoah pleads, God, bring the angel of the Lord. And God does bring the angel of the Lord back. But he doesn't bring the angel of the Lord back in the way that Manoah wanted him to. So what does she do? She goes back to Manoah again and immediately tells him that the angel of the Lord had come again to visit her. And we're told that Manoah followed her back to the angel to verify for himself what she had heard. And notice that once again, the angel does not communicate to Manoah in this passage. He communicates again to his wife. And Manoah asked the angel, what is the child's manner of life and what is his mission? What a great question to ask. Now, I'm going to kind of dog Manoah in this passage, but in this particular verse, he's asking the right question. What is the mission of my child? Parents, grandparents, future parents in the room, I would advise you to ask this question of your children and your grandchildren. What is the mission of my children, my grandchildren on this planet? 
The mission of your child's life is not a college scholarship. It is not to make the high school baseball team or cheerleading team or football team. Those are great things, but those things will burn up in eternity. They do not matter. The scriptures are very clear. When we ask the question, what is the mission of our children and our grandchildren's lives? It's very clear. If your children and your grandchildren are in Christ, it is to go and make disciples of all nations. That is the mission of every single Christian on this planet. So let me ask you a follow-up question. What are you doing to steward the mission that your son or daughter, grandson or granddaughter have as followers of Jesus? Are you stewarding and discipling your children and your grandchildren to make sure that they understand that the most important thing that they do with their lives is not to get a job where they make lots of money, but it is to go and make disciples, whether that be in Dothan or halfway around the world. If your grandchild or your child were to come to you today and say, God has told me or he is calling me to go and live in the most remote village in one of the most dangerous parts of the world, would you praise God? Or would you say, no, 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 you can't do that. You're ruining your life. Be a good question to ask. But we know based on the scriptures, that if we raise our children to fall short of the mission, to go and make disciples, then they're being disobedient to what the scriptures clearly teach. Now, the angel's response in this passage is this. Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. The angel doesn't even really acknowledge that Manoah's even in the picture. The angel tells him what his wife should do. So what does Manoah try to do? He's still insecure. He's still not getting the answer he wants. So he says in verse 16, And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. He wanted to provide this offering to the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord says, No, I will not eat your food if you prepare a burnt offering. Offer it to the Lord. And then in parentheses we're told, For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. How is this possible that a man could be this unintelligent? Time and time again, the angel of the Lord approaches Manoah's wife, tells her what she is to do with her son. She goes and tells her husband, the angel of the Lord told me this or that. And the author of Judges here tells us he still did not know that this was the angel of the Lord. It's a head-scratcher. But look at verses 19 through 21. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering, and he offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching And they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then, finally, Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. The entire encounter between Manoah, his wife, the angel of the Lord, 
is an encounter that not only makes Manoah look insecure and unintelligent, but it's all an attempt for Manoah to take control of the story, to be the one with the good news. He could not fathom that God would use someone like an unnamed wife to give birth to the greatest judge the nation of Israel has ever seen. The text tells us that after the angel of the Lord leaves, now Manoah is fearful that he's going to die because he has seen God. So who comes to calm him down? His wife. Look at verse 23. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. We have the insecurity of Manoah. We have an unnamed wife who ends up being the only one in this story that has any sense about her whatsoever. We see the insecurity of Manoah. But number three, as this passage concludes, a new judge is born. Despite this unnamed wife, despite this unintelligent and insecure man, God decided that this would be the couple that would raise up Samson. The text tells us that the Lord blessed Samson. And as we're going to read in the coming weeks, Samson is going to be the one that God will use to defeat one of the greatest enemies that the Israelites ever faced in the Philistines. The strongest of all judges physically has, in many ways, the weakest parents. But isn't that the way God often works through his children? Doesn't he regularly use the weakest? Those that society would deem as unimportant, unpowerful to accomplish his purposes? Throughout the scriptures, we learn that God chooses to use the unlikely ones to accomplish his purposes. He chooses the younger child, Jacob, over the powerful, manly, hairy firstborn, Esau. He chooses the 11th born son of Jacob, Joseph, to save his people from famine rather than the firstborn, Reuben. And as we know in Israel, the firstborn always got all of the rights, all of the privileges, and all of the wealth. He used Moses, who could not communicate effectively, to go and deliver his people from Egyptian bondage. He used Jesse's son, David, the shepherd boy, who Jesse didn't even remember his name. He almost forgot about him. When he's talking to Samuel, he uses David to be the greatest king the nation of Israel ever has. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7 says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance, praise God for that, or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. He chooses Jonah to go and preach repentance to the Ninevites. 
And the book of Jonah teaches us that Jonah hated the Ninevites. Wouldn't it have made more sense for God to choose someone who was zealous for evangelism, zealous to see lost people saved? And God says, no, I'm going to go with Jonah. He hates people. He hopes that all of the Ninevites burn in hell. That's who I'm going to send to go and preach repentance and faith to the Ninevites. It makes no sense in our minds. And then when he sends his own son, Jesus. He doesn't send Jesus into this powerful Roman family. He sends him to a family with a poor carpenter and a betrothed woman by the name of Mary to settle in a place called Nazareth. What do we know about Nazareth? John tells us in his gospel, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Do you see as we weaved our way through the scriptures, how God regularly uses insignificant, weak people to accomplish his purposes in the world. This is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 23, 12, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the way that God works in the world. He uses those that the world would least expect to accomplish his purposes. So what do we do with that? Well, if you're an ordinary average Joe, congratulations. God can use you to proclaim the gospel and change people's lives through his spirit. Your job is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you are doing those things, you are being obedient to what God has called you to do. Remember, the goal is not to bring glory and honor to ourselves. It is to bring glory and honor to our Heavenly Father. And oftentimes, glory and honor in God's eyes, many times actually, does not align with the world's understanding of glory and honor. John Newton, the great hymn writer, great author, great pastor in the 18th and 19th centuries, he spent seven years seeking ordination within the Church of England. He was rejected time and time again. You know why he was rejected? Because he didn't have any formal education and because he associated with Methodists. No offense to our Methodist friends. That's just why he was rejected from the Church of England. That's seriously not a shot at the Methodists. That's the reason why. He was a slave trader. He went to Africa to bring home slaves and sold them for a profit. He was a sea captain with almost no formal theological education whatsoever, and yet he was the man that God ultimately uses to write probably the greatest hymn ever written, Faith's Review and Expectation, which to you means nothing, but the first line of that hymn ends up being what we now know as Amazing Grace. The fifth stanza of that hymn says this, Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail, and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. Many people think that Amazing Grace is really an autobiography of John Newton's life. 
And in spite of all of the evil wickedness that he had done when he came to faith in Christ and he was pursuing him and knocking on ordination's door over and over again only to be rejected. God ends up using him to write probably the greatest hymn that's ever been written. So let me encourage you today as as we look at Manoah, an unintelligent, insecure man, and this unnamed wife that we know nothing about, God used this couple to ultimately give birth and raise a judge who would provide salvation for his people. Whatever your current state is in life, if you are obedient to Christ and his word and committed to his church, God will use you to make a difference with those that you know. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this narrative of Samson, particularly the story of his birth. And we, we leave this story realizing that this, this whole chapter really wasn't even about Samson. It was about you using ordinary people to accomplish your purposes in the world. And God, that's, that's how you want to use us. We're ordinary people that want to be used by you to accomplish your purposes in the world. So I pray if there's anyone in this room today that feels like their life is unimportant or doesn't have any meaning, that they would look to this story and remember that you sent Jesus for them. And because of that, they have purpose and meaning and they can be used by you. There's anyone in the room here today that does not know you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict them of their sin, that they would repent and believe in faith in the gospel. We thank you for using ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things for your glory. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.